0: Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with AIDS with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture.
1: Welcome everybody. Um, it's a delight to have you at the, this um, meeting of the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice. We are really privileged uh, today to have Dr. Agnes Kalibatov um, to speak to us on paradigm shifts in food systems. And there couldn't be a more important topic at the present moment. We're coming out of COP26. We have, uh, we're experiencing a pandemic that has put into question many of the dimensions of our food production and food supply chains globally. And Dr. Kalibata Bata uh, is um, president of the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, uh, where she's led efforts with public and private partners for inclusive and sustainable agricultural growth with a focus on smallholder farmers. And in 2019, the UN Secretary General appointed Dr. Kalibata a special envoy for the 2021 Food Systems Summit, which which took place during this past September. And I know it's a very contentious meeting, Agnes. Um, There may be questions. I know that uh, Ian um, was also following that closely and I hope we can discuss some of of those debates. Um, Dr. Kalibata was Rwanda's Minister of Agriculture and Animal Resources. Um, And this is when I met her back in in the noughties. And I don't know that She really remembers me. I met you at least once in Kigali. Some of our research uh, team members also met with you. But it's quite extraordinary the achievements that you presided over um, in in, um, uh, revitalizing uh, uh, Rwanda's agricultural system and turning it from a food insecure to a food secure status. um, And Really offering quite a lot of lessons to others around sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Dr. Kalibata has held several other leadership positions in government and academia. She sits on the Global Commission on Adaptation, the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, the Global Agricultural Agriculture and Food Security Program, the Global Agenda Council of the World Economic Forum, and uh, the architecture for REDD plus transactions among many other uh, appointments. She has a series of a a long string of prizes and I don't wanna take up the whole session by reading them all out. So it's a great honor to have you here, um, uh, Agnes, to be speaking to us about paradigm shifts in food systems. We have Dr. Ian Schoonz as discussant tonight and we couldn't have a more illustrious discussant um, Dr. Schoons is co-director of the ESRC Steps Center at Sussex and principal investigator of the ERC Advanced Grant Project on Pastoralism, Uncertainty and Resilience, Lessons from the Margins. Uh, for any of us in Britain, we know um, Dr. Schoons for a long time as one, one of the experts on agrarian change. Some of our own students are reading your work, uh, Ian, on agrarian reform and and other issues. Uh, He works on agrarian and environmental change, particularly in Africa. And he has a particular interest in the connections between science policy and the politics of sustainability. Uh, He has long-term research on land and agricultural livelihoods in Zimbabwe and is a member of the editorial collective of the great journal of peasant studies, um, as well as being on the editorial board of Ecology and Society. So, Ian, it's really kind of us, uh, kind of you to join us uh, from from Sussex. Um, and I should mention, uh, Dr. Kalibata, I think you're speaking to us from from Nairobi. Is it? Yes. So, I'm going to turn the floor over to you, um, Agnes, and. Um, um, we're really looking forward to listening to you.
2: Thank you, James. Thank you for those introductory remarks. And uh, let me just say that I, I I love the idea of being on the same floor as, as Ian, because the very challenges you're talking about, the science policy interface, sustainability of uh, these uh, food systems and agricultural systems in particular, are things that I just feel like I live with every day, trying to figure out the next next thing and any opportunity to have a conversation with people in the same field is really uh, huge. So let me, um, first of all, start by thanking you all for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to talk to you. Um, it's, It's pretty late here in Nairobi, but I'm as excited as if it was very early in the morning because. Again, any opportunity to, to help you and the community that is involved here understand what we've been doing in the food systems in the last 18 months, but also understand some of the challenges we see as we try to move forward. And some of the shifts that we must live through is something that gives me pleasure to, to talk to you about. So, so again, like I said that earlier, when, when I was asked uh, to talk to have a conversation uh, with you all, I thought that the best thing to start the best place to go is to talk about some of the shifts we are seeing in our food systems. I want to, to start, I, I already started by appreciating the opportunity to talk to you all, but I wanted to emphasize that the work we've been doing and the, the challenges we're living through, and the challenges of the conversations we have in the, in the in the last 18 months really are the world trying about the world trying to find an equitable environment, an equitable society but also a functional society. They are anchored in human rights. The, the, the food system was really about addressing the fact that we are not coming through on SDGs. So I know this, this did come out in a number of places where people were like, no, we are not addressing human rights. But actually, the whole conversation was about being able to come through on something we've committed to that we are not able to come through yet. the The, the issue of human rights, the issue of of SDGs, but also uh, the issue of coming through on our planet. In addition to coming through for people, and I'm going to take, take you through some of these. So, uh, in in 20 in 2019, the Secretary General reached out and asked if we could um, mo- we could move forward a food systems summit. And the food systems summit was really he was really mostly interested in the transformation of the food system. And he thought that for the food system to transform it would have to be anchored around people, reaching out to people and engaging people, but it would also have to be anchored in science and how science is used to inform policies and investments subsequently at country level. So part of what I'm going to talk to you about is really show you the journey that we took um, when, when we approached this food system summit. We did it at a time of COVID, which was a, an extremely, in fact, uh one well, two months after I was announced as special envoy, we, we had shutdown of travel and all those things happened, as you all know. And I, I we just had to work through this um through COVID. But I also must say that COVID did give us some wind in our sense, in the sense that the levels of anxiety among people and what we could do together increased. So uh, we did we did move forward partly due to the fact that uh, the people saw an opportunity to move forward together. We did have uh, the, this whole work anchored in science, as I said before, because for the first time, this, this sixth being the sixth meeting of on food food, this was the first one that was on food systems, but this is the first one that had a scientific group to look at the science and the evidence behind food systems and what is happening around food systems. So we had a group of scientists, which we call the scientific group, that really was a huge anchor and I'll talk more about it. The food system for me, coming to the leadership of the Food system Summit was for me an opportunity to call out what is going wrong with the African continent uh, and, and, the, and the type of shifts that are needed on the African continent. I have a full-time job, but I took on the job because again, of the kind of challenges that I saw that having, working on the continent and beginning to see the opportunities for recovery that I was beginning to see, and then just seeing that taken away by climate change and by COVID after that, for me was a challenge I couldn't refuse to take on, if if only to help the world understand where the continent is at, where the African continent is at with regards to these challenges. The Food system Summit, of course, is also an opportunity for us to rethink our nutrition. We have right now, we have, is it half, every one in two people on this, on this continent, I mean in this, in our globe, is actually suffering the challenge of um, improper food or inappropriate food, if I might call it that. Uh, Leading to what what now we call um, diet-related diseases. And just putting nutrition at the center of the food system seemed like a very important thing. But food is also an opportunity for us to connect uh, from a humanity perspective. So we we really did anchor it around that. It's an opportunity to improve livelihoods. And it's an an opportunity now we know, and I'll talk more about that, to strengthen uh, environmental sustainability. Um, we do have challenges, of course. Many people want to refer to food system as food systems as broken. I, I don't refer to them as broken because they still feed us. They still feed us, and in the last fifty years, food systems that we are producing probably, um, a, you know, so much more food than we were able to produce before we figured out how to. Produce food the way we are today, so it has huge benefits. It's a huge industry. There's a huge industry that has bro- has been built around food systems, so it's really feeding us and keeping us going and keeping economies going. But it has challenges. There are huge parts of the world that are still living through hunger and malnutrition. In fact, this year alone, we see 811 million people living in hunger. Malnutrition, for example, in Africa has gone up by 46 percent. Uh, in the last 10 years, we see, like I said earlier, diet related diseases. We see that uh, now we know that uh, food systems are contributing 30% to greenhouse gases, some of that coming from food loss and waste, which is uh, $1 trillion, uh, costs us $1 trillion annually. We see uh, challenges. That, uh, that are related to to trade and and, and inability to you know now we we'll talk about um, short versus long long uh, supply chains and some of the disruption that we are we are living through uh, that we need to think through and and their contribution to part of the climate change uh, we see food related conference but these are all related to some of the other challenges climate change especially but also we see a whole lot of biodiversity loss and, and land degradation that is associated with food systems. So yes, food does a whole lot, it it keeps us together, it brings us together societies, it's our culture, but it also has an impact on our environment in ways that we need to start thinking about. And, and that's the reason I was talking about the type of paradigm shifts we need to think through. If we are going to come through for people, not just for people, but for pla- for our planet as well, and for our economies. So I'm not going to repeat this, but because I said them already, but maybe here I call out uh, what I haven't called out before is the challenge of resilience and adaptation that we need to be investing in. And, And the reason I'm calling this out is during COP26, one of the things that became stuck to me as clarity, huge clarity for me is, the fact that even if we manage to to get hold of climate change today and manage to stop climate from changing any further, the what is already happening in our midst is going to go on for the next thirty to forty years. Meaning that for communities that are already experiencing challenges, really significant investments in resilience and adaptation is something that we are going to have to do to make sure that these communities survive. And most of these communities are found. Either around the equator or in in, in uh, uh, small island states around the world and in some other vulnerable places uh, that, are, that, are, that are susceptible to, to like rising sea levels. So when we come to, to when you look at a food system, then we, we really and, and trying to approach how the food system works, we really try to look at it from a holistic approach. Um, and the scientists in, in our media that we've been working with have d- described it as that process really that looks comes all the way from production uh, to how we consume food at our tables, but also how we dispose of it. The number of institutions that are involved and the types of things we do, the most stakeholders and the, the, the governments and uh, member states and intergovernmental processes that are involved in the process. And the collaboration of food. So there's the whole food system really became so complex, even my own understanding, as we stated this work, became so complex. So what we did then was really to focus on two things. We focused on ability to reach people and mobilize as many people as we can, and ability to to mobilize solutions so really the food system was 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 designed the food system summit was designed around those those two areas in mobilizing people we we put in place dialogues so we thought that the best way to ensure that uh, we get most from people is we 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 initiate dialogues so member states had dialogues going on in their own countries to identify what is broken or what is working and what's not working Um, Then we realized that outside member states, we have all sorts of communities, so we had what we call independent dialogues as well, In those independent dialogues, people also had conversations, and we tried to make sure that producers are talking to each other, that um, indigenous people are having conversations, that youth are having conversations, that private sector is having conversations, and where the opportunity presented itself, that civil society is talking, and that really we are all talking to each other at the same time. And these dialogues, I'll tell you in a minute how much they have really helped us achieve and how much we've been able to do. We put in place a champions network that was whose, whose really purpose was to, for people who cared about the food systems enough to mobilize networks that, that would also ensure that people that I don't have access to or food, the food system some doesn't have access to still get an opportunity about those food systems. We mobilize people across all constituencies, uh, again, across producers, fishers, across all groups of people. Then we worked, we had the scientific group working behind the scenes making sure that we put forward the sales of the summit. And then we mobilized action through five areas we call action tracks. And mobilizing action is actually what what we call mobilizing solutions. We had over 2,500 solutions mobilized, but, and, and this, we, we call them them changing ideas. We consolidated them into 55 solution clusters. And and of course they sit across the the five action areas. So through these dialogues, through this constituency mobilization, we reached millions of people. And through this solution, through action tracks, we mobilized millions of institutions, but also individuals in terms of whoever had ideas that could be transformative. And these ideas were discussed by institutions and to be able to land here as ideas that are considered them changing ideas, they went through several iterations where people really uh, gave them significant thought. Um, Fast forward, uh, the Food System Summit did happen on 23rd of September and it really, really, again like i said earlier on we were able to see huge huge mobilization coming from from member states we had over 165 member states provide member state statements we had 148 countries participating and they are still doing so participate in dialogues around how to to change uh, their food systems of those 107 already submitted their national pathways what you would call national strategies of changing food systems on how they would change food systems. We are submitted by the date of the 23rd. We have over independent dialogue still going on. Our target is to reach 1,000. And I think we are reaching them before end of this month. We have commitments. So we, we put in place a commitment registry and encourage communities, everybody who wants to make a commitment. And we have 227 commitments. You know as. And commitments range from something as some NGO in Nepal committed to do something to a huge coalition, global coalition, like a school-feeding coalition, where you have like 35 member states and more that are coming together to do something. We involved um, research and development agencies. We involved technology institutions and institutions that look at, at innovations. We looked at poly, the, the interface between science and, 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 and policy in, and how we should inform policy reforms. And we looked at uh, how we would implement all this really, look especially uh, talking about the finance, financial instruments that would be, would be appropriate to drive a food systems change. Uh, to just give you a sense of what came out uh, of these conversations, especially the member states, uh, we did an analysis to try to understand what member states were, were putting forward, because the Secretary General asked for commitments. So what were they committing to? What are they willing to do? So this is what they said in their statements. But this is also an expression of their priorities and concerns. So 81 member states, the two things that came up the, out the, forward the most, and they scored, it, interestingly scored the same, same marks or same number of member states, recovery from COVID and and collaboration. So the food system summit did really bring out in people the whole idea of collaboration and recognizing that no single institution can do this alone or come through these things alone. So member states were calling for collaboration to get the food systems work going, but they were also calling for for an end and mechanisms of supporting recovery from COVID-19. Of course, a number of other areas we are called out, the whole perspective of ending hunger, the whole perspective of improving diets. And then interestingly, from where you're sitting, I also noticed that when you add them up, um, about 69 institutions called out for science and technology and innovation and research, and and really just ensuring that what we do is informed by informed by science. And I can share these slides if you're interested. We did get significant contribution from the area of the academia and the academia did double, basically did really, um, Um, through the work of the scientific group did confirm some of these findings, and this is compiled in a lot of work that was done in what we are calling the science reader. The the science reader and the scientific group brought up seven priorities that if if invested in would actually enhance an end to hunger and improve uh, our our, our results on, on the environment. And there are quite a number of other products that came from, uh, from from that those pieces of work. At the end of the day, we we want to make sure that some of the conversations that we didn't have also get hard, right? Some of there are some things that um, that we didn't bring out enough. I I don't think that we were able to address the question of staying within planetary boundaries enough, uh, because some of the challenges of the summit. I don't think we're able to address the question and the challenge of the true cost of food enough, because again, the true cost of food is through the resources we spend on health and, and the resources we spend on collecting challenges on the environment. Uh, we, and, and then of course, we also didn't explore enough um, the opportunities for, for investing in businesses that are green, even though that is going to have to be the, the future. And when I say this, uh, I mean, when we talk about COP26, we are trying to think about new, new business models because of where we are at. The agricultural system is going to have to come up with new business models because of where we are at. And the food system is going to come up with new business models because of where we are at. Now, fast forward, uh, when I look at all that, maybe I, I just, uh, as well of concluding this conversation, I wanted to go to some of the work that, that I was able to do in Rwanda. And just help you how some of these things can translate into real results on the ground. And uh, and uh, I, I know that Ian will bring some of this up, up, and I would love to hear how he brings it up. But um, the Rwanda story is something that I always find interesting, uh, in the sense that um, you know you, you here you have a, a, a very small country that has a responsibility to feed itself. and and be able to make smallholder farmers viable, but they're the smallest in the world. They're the smallest, basically, smallest smallholder farmers, you might say. So how do you create the right balance between making a farmer a smallholder viable, a smallholder farmer viable, and ensuring that they they do what they're doing in a sustainable environment? So some of the things we put in in place in Rwanda included things like consolidation of land, so that in the process you consolidate farmers and give give you know move from a farmer carrying their surplus in a small basket on their head to actually collectively that surplus being something that a truck can come and pick create markets help them create markets we did do uh, what we called intensification where we helped them access improved seeds and, and fertilizers so that they could have Increased productivity, and then we also focused a lot on land restoration because a lot of Rwanda's land was lost uh, to degradation because of of overuse. People use land, it loses value, or it loses soil erosion happens, and they leave it and they go to the next next bit. So here, this is a place where really trying to understand what scientific approaches we can put in place and how you turn them into policy to help you. Things forward was what had it work for Rwanda? It, it, it it's been it's been successful, and it's been controversial in some places. But I would say I I, I really um, think that at least Rwanda can very proudly talk about um, being able to be a food secure country within limits, uh, given given the the challenges of food security that we have on the continent in general. And then of course we. The Wanda is a very bold when it comes to, to doing things that are right from a climate change perspective or, or policy perspective. We've taken very bold measures on climate change. But this is mostly because we have a small space. We need to do the right things. So some of the policies are informed by the needs on the ground. Uh, we've also looked at opportunities to build partnerships where we could so that we can enhance. Um, Enhance public-private partnerships that can be transformative in nature. So, for example, there's a partnership with with the, some of the businesses that have actually led to transformative food solutions, and you can talk about that if you're interested. But also, Rwanda has invested a lot in harnessing uh, technology and digitization. So, all these uh, type, this is all when you look at it, really, all the way from food systems to 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 what is happening in Rwanda, the need to. To think differently, the need to find solutions to deal with the challenges we are are working with today is something that we have to build in in what we are doing. And in fact, one of the conclusions of the Food Systems Summit is that the means of implementation, in addition to being financing, there are two other things we must put in place in terms of, of, of ensuring that we implement food systems. We must govern right. Meaning that we engage all sectors, but we also engage all people, and we must be prepared to use innovation to continue innovating. Um, so and and you see it here. So this takes me to then talk talking to you a little bit about the work that we do in Agra. Um really uh, if you you look at the one and perspective as one way of doing business and one extreme in agro what we are trying to do is just trying to understand that to have a sustainable perspective on the African continent we need functional systems and we need functional institutions that are that are, that can can be able to deliver sustainably because fixing the challenges of hunger is not extremely complicated the formula is already known you have the right seeds you have the the inputs, other inputs like fertilizers, when where you need them, you use them right, you have the right level of extension, you get enough yields, even in one season. Can you sustain it from a market's perspective? Can you sustain it from a farmer's doing it perspective if they see because it costs money to do all those things? Can you sustain it from an environmental perspective? Uh, so, these needs, these things to be able to be sustainable, we need the right policy environment they need the right systems to function, they need need the right capacities at country level. So that's really where we invest a lot of our energy and we've built uh, partnerships with some of our donors so to also help them understand some of the challenges we go through. So we have a partnership for agricultural transformation that has a number of partners. And here, the the key focus for for this particular partnership in Agra is also to address the challenge of donor fragmentation. And aid fragmentation, because you find here in Africa, like there are so many, many programs that end up not adding up, and as a result, you see that aid doesn't add up. You see that transformation doesn't come despite the investments. So, having done a whole lot of analysis of these things, uh, we, we, we thought that if we can encourage people to come together, first of all, it gives them visibility of where each other is investing, which they usually don't have what is the visibility of where you're investing, who you're investing in, who you're working with, and can we build on those efforts rather than, and and do the gaps rather than do the same things, all of us. Um, So these are some of the challenges we are addressing at Agra. All of it with the intention of ensuring that at the end of the line, we do have transforming farmers. We do build systems that can ensure that private sector Uh, especially SMEs here in Africa, are able to take advantage of the environment, working environment, private sector environment, because policies are being reformed, because business opportunities are being created, uh, so that they can sustain the system of of agricultural transformation. So we really uh, focused on ensuring that these things work. And if they work, we see farmers transforming, but there will always be a long time between systems working and capacities being built and farmers being able to transform. So that's really the focus of our work as Agra. And I just wanted to um, take this to conclusion uh, by insisting on the fact that um, as an academic, as people that are in in academia, that as the people I'm talking to here, I I will I, I would really like to emphasize the science to policy interface and the need to make this work faster. So the other day I was talking to a scientific group and I was I was saying, is it possible to actually be very deliberate around having conversations at country level on the science policy interface so that we don't spend so much time having technology sitting on the table on the shelf? And the policies taking forever to catch up with technological development, because now we are able to develop technologies faster than we did a few years ago. But policies are not able to keep pace, especially here in Africa. Part of what my institution does is to to reform, to support countries to reform policies. We've moved from about 10 years of policies being reformed to about three years. Three years is still a lot of time to reform a policy for something you know is a solution to a problem you're trying to, 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 to fix. Um, the, the other point I'd like to make is that the food systems that we are in the, in the food system summit it really has to be the way to go because feeding people, driving for the bottom, you know, for a very, very affordable food prices, which is what we do from a business perspective, is not where the world is at. We are going to have to care about our planet. We are going to have to care about how some of the challenges that come after impact our economies and how how much that takes us backwards. So I think now a functional food system would have to be a food system that takes care of people, that takes care of planet, but also answers the challenges that we are dealing with in our economies, especially the challenge of inequity. Today, there are so many people that earn less than is sufficient to buy a decent meal. So is and yet we call that poverty line. We have that as the poverty line. How can our poverty, our ability to graduate from the poverty line not to be able to afford a decent meal? Those are some, again, I'm talking about paradigm shifts here. We have an opportunity to build on the momentum generated in COP26 to transform food systems, but the conversation in COP26 has to embed a lot more the food system because the food system is, con- is contributing to climate change. We now know that. But the, food, the, but the food system suffers the most from climate change. And so the ability to to have adaptation uh, as a mechanism of addressing the challenges the food system is, is facing. And, and this is important because it affects the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable countries and the most vulnerable people. So that's why adaptation uh, is an important part of what we need to be talking about. The, the biggest opportunity in our midst, uh, around the world, I guess, is, is the young people of this world. They pushed us very hard in the Food system Summit. Uh, they wanted to see change. They pushed very hard for appropriate, they, they don't, the number one thing they, they put, they put for the declaration in the Food system Summit. The number one thing they were calling for is healthy food, healthy diets. It's costing us so much money to stay on top of health, and this is something that can because that can be fixed from a food the perspective. They also, excuse me, they also care about where our planet is going, and they are telling us that we are running the planet to the ground and we are leaving them nothing. So definitely, uh, they 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 have their heart and 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 uh, ambition in the right places. So let's let's really give them the. Opportunity to be better leaders than, than we have been when it comes to leading for the environment, but also to be, to, to really um, be better leaders than we have been when it comes to ensuring that we have a health population. I would, right now, like I said earlier, our population is, is heavily burdened uh, from health perspective. So there are so many things, but, but I think here for me, the biggest thing is the changes in our food systems are real. Uh, I I gave you an example, a counter example from one perspective, I gave you a continental example from an African perspective, but I also talked to you about the food systems and the things we are focused on and how we thought we might shift the paradigm. All in all, if you ask me, what did we achieve in the Food Systems Summit, I'll say for me the the biggest, the, the thing that I'm most proud of is being able to shift the paradigm around how we think about food. There's no question that around the world people now think about food as a system that they see that impacts a number of other things besides just a good meal to have. So That's number one. Number two, there are now a huge number of member states that are busy thinking through how to build sustainable food systems. And yes, it will take a long time for all of us to come through on building food systems. But at least we are thinking about the shifts that must happen. Number three, there are partnerships that are being built uh, to ensure that we come through together, where we see the biggest opportunity to come through together, whether it's when you look at things like um, um, coalitions on uh, agroecology, coalitions on sustainable livestock, coalitions on school feeding. These are all things that are major global things that we, we, we aspire to. Or we feel we should achieve but no single institution no single country can do it alone and just seeing the world come together around these things is something that gives me great pleasure in, in terms of what we've achieved and then the science we now have a science behind all this stuff that we've done that speaks about what is important food systems and how food systems can start being incorporated in how we we advance our world, including the numbers that are needed to deal with these challenges. More important from a science and policy perspective, we have this community now together through the work of the scientific group. We have over 25 institutions of science and policy with their networks that are linking up to the HLPs, uh, the the high level panel of experts that support the, the CFS, whether they agree or disagree, at least now they have visibility of each other. And once they agree to work together, I think the world will be a much, much better place. So I'll conclude there. And um, thank you again for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. And I hope I have been able to paint for you a picture of the type of shifts that our system, our systems need uh, to be able to move us forward. Thank you again, James.
1: Agnes, thank you. As clear, as sharp as ever, even at the late hour, it is where you are. It's and okay. so, we'll now ask um, uh, Ian to, to, to give us a comment, uh, uh, and then, uh, Ian, can I turn the screen over to you?
3: Thank you, uh, James, and thank you, Agnes, for such a fantastically comprehensive overview. Um, there's a lot we, we agree on um, in, in what you've said, the importance, I mean, the clear central importance of food, central to our common challenges and particularly I think this linkage between food and wider questions of sustainability and climate and so on and the need to think about food and food systems in a holistic way and that we have to have dialogues around this Um, and I think all of those things are absolutely central. But I want to, you know, in the interest of having a bit of a discussion, uh, make a few points around three different themes. I want to talk about systems and how we think about systems. I want to talk about green revolutions and how we think about green revolutions. And I think want to think about, well, what does that mean about uh, paradigm shifts and whether what you've proposed is a new paradigm or whether we have to think a bit more deeply about what those paradigms should be. So. Systems. I mean, I think it's a re- has been a really important move to shift the food debate to uh, to a systems debate. Um, but I think there's been a tendency in a lot of the discussion over the last eighteen months and 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 beyond to have a quite technocratic view of what systems are. You know, systems are about science, about technology, about markets. But in the centre I work with at Sussex, we talk a lot about systems, complex systems, not just as the material, technical, market arrangements, but as about social and political relations. And I think we have to, you hinted at it, we have to think about the the social and political relations that underpin what food systems are. And the other thing to think about systems, and and food systems in particular, is that they're plural, there isn't just one food system, there are multiple food systems. And it depends where you sit, what a system looks like. So you know, there are dominant, uh, there are dominant, powerful food systems, and there are alternative ones, and different actors associated with different political and social relations, will have very different views on whether those are good, bad, indifferent, or whatever. So I think that's what we would say from our perspective at the step center, uh, to think about systems in that way. And that raises, of course, very fundamental, uh, central questions of political economy. Um, you know, The basic questions of who owns what, who controls what, who benefits, who loses out, and you know, the broader effects, structural effects of food systems on environments, both now and in the future. So I think, you know, bringing questions of power and politics, as well as equity, which you did mention, uh, into into this debate about food systems, plural food systems, is central. Because as I said, you know, food systems are not the same, you know, a long value chain, high tech, high reliance on fossil fuel food system. Um, it's totally different to one local, rooted in local economies, uh, less reliant on external inputs, more circular, more sustainable, obviously. But we have to have that debate and about what the political, economic and other trade-offs are. And as I said, I think the way you see a system depends on who you are. It's it's about the material conditions of production, the labor labor relations, gender relations that constitute them. That matter. And we have to understand food systems in that light, I would say. So I think, yeah, defining what food systems are, and food systems in particular, how they're constructed by people, through values, ethics, cultures, always imbued with politics. And you know, you've you've overseen the UN Food Systems Summit, you know there's a lot of politics in this debate, but I think we have to surface it and have a discussion about it. Systems aren't there uh, objectively defined out there by science. They're always contested. And I think that relates to the wider question about green revolutions. Um, I think going beyond what's often quite a narrow technical discussion of systems and science and market fixes around them for the future of agriculture is really essential. We need to think about how different farmers, workers, consumers, traders and others think about agricultural transformation or green green revolutions. There isn't a single pathway. There's not one green revolution. They're always negotiated and that's the important point, I think, about the relationship between science and policy. It's not that science comes up with the solutions; it gets implemented in policy, and then we have an agricultural transformation. It's not the relation from science to policy. It's about the negotiation between the two, as you well know, uh, having been a, a, a being been a minister. Um, so it's how those negotiations happen, in what political context, with whom that then becomes important. But we often get trapped in this rather technical vision of, of green revolutions, which often has been invented after the event You know about just about high yielding varieties and fertilizers and inputs. And everyone knows that the transformations of agriculture in India, in China and indeed in Rwanda was much more than those technical components. It was much more about it was also about institutions and policies and and, and that negotiated politics. And that's why I've been a bit disappointed in the way some of this was debated, for example, at the COP. So there was a big, big meeting where the CGIR, the International Network of Agricultural Research Institutes across the globe, which I have a huge respect for, launched with British aid money in particular, what they called uh, let me try and get remember it uh, a climate shot towards sustainable agriculture framed as an innovation race that it just struck me i mean i know it's appealing to the donors i know it's it's it sounds good but this framing as you know climate shot moonshot technical only uh, innovation race i thought it just missed the point we, have they learned nothing from green revolutions past? The CG, of course, was born out of the original green revolutions. So I found that uh, disappointing because on the panel that discussed it, there was not one mention of the social and political in that debate. And I think very often we get trapped in the idea that science can always deliver. I, had, I have to say, I had a look at uh, the website, Agra's website uh, earlier and your... Um, Corporate profile for this year. I'm sorry to give it back to you. I mean, in a corporate, I mean you can look at my institution, the corporate profile says something probably that I have no idea what it what it what's on it. But anyway, (laughs) for the benefit of your information as president, we believe that access to improved technology such as seed fertilizer, market infrastructure, innovative finance will lead to large-scale adoption, driving systemic change that will result in improved farmer livelihoods. I agree. But then there's something, I mean, there's something more than that. I mean, you said in your talk, the formula is well known. I would say the formula is not that well known, because actually you went on to say that actually it's policy systems, uh, institutions, and, and so on. And I would add political negotiations between different actors in the food system that are important to delivering it. So I think that's why I you know, would want to challenge and push back a little bit about some of this sort of very optimistic view, innovation, race um, and, and, and so on that we get trapped in sometimes. It's what my colleague, Robert Chambers, who now retired, but you know, very influential in these debates over many, many years, called a transfer of technology approach, top-down, linear, technocratic, And I think sometimes we get captured in the zeal often of enthusiastic philanthropists, I could name a few, who feel that the only solution is is down that route. And I think we have to push back back from that, even if they, like Bill Gates, provide quite a lot of money to all of this. Um, So to some extent, I found bits of the UN Food Summit, I didn't follow it all. I have to say, Um, I was involved in a few of those thousands of sessions that you mentioned. A little bit disappointing. I think anchoring in science, as you said, is really good. I mean, my background is as a biologist um, originally. We also have to think about anchoring in people. I mean, I don't think you'll disagree with that. And I think we have to think about how to anchor that more broadly in a wider politics, because there's a real danger, as was the critique of the UN food Systems summit, which I think was, was uh, legitimate to some degree, uh, that there can be captured by corporate interests, and and through a narrow multi stakeholder approach, if we don't, as it were surface, the political interests that are at the centre of it. And I I was in Glasgow for a bit. um, And I found The cop quite depressing in that sense because the wider political mobilizations were happening on the streets outside but not in the conference rooms this was you know there was a lot of talk about climate and market fixes technological fixes and so on and i think that tends to get replicated in the food debate and i think that's a missed opportunity um so to conclude what does this all say to to new paradigms i'm not against technology, I'm not against markets, I'm not against the involvement of business, but we have to ask to what ends and under whose control. And I think this is the the crucial debate that's that's missed in a lot of the food systems debate and a lot of our debates about development, frankly, more broadly. Um, We have to understand how systems are constructed politically and socially, and we have to understand how different uh, farmers' conditions uh, affect that. And you know that. I mean, you started out as a breeder. The most effective forms of of, uh, development of new seeds happens in participation with farmers, in dialogue. It's not just the breeder produces the the seed and and gives it to the farmer. It's always a dialogue and it's always an interaction. And we we need to think about science in that way much more than we probably do. So it's not the silver bullet seed that will be captured by a big corporation and sold as a with proprietary rights. I mean, you know, a lot of the GM crop advocates fell into that trap. I think um, we have to go beyond that to think about uh, different food systems, different farming systems uh, that have farmers and people at the centre. So, to summarise, and I've gone over time. I'm sure I haven't got my clock on. Um, let's go beyond this technical market fix that we get trapped in, because it sounds flashy, to have a a wider understanding of what complex social and political systems of food, climate, and and their interactions are. Let's have farmers and consumers and labourers and traders, both first and last, a much more fully participatory approach, which is genuinely a dialogue, not just a a construction of multi-stakeholder Positions and let's recognise in that that necessarily, inevitably, politics are central. Who controls the food system inevitably, and the science that goes that that underpins it is crucial, because not all food systems are the same. I'll finish there.
1: Ian, thank you very much. You're really succinct with a very um, uh, important contribution. Agnes, would you like to make an initial response?
2: thank you, thank you for the opportunity, James. I mean, I really want to say I agree largely to uh, all the the points you're making, Ian, around food systems much more than technologies and we need to bring in the social political dimension, the political economy is real. And I, I think one of the challenges as you talk, I keep asking myself, so. How did we fail to communicate that? Because let me give you an example from a, um, a food system perspective, this whole thing was built around member states recognizing fully well that the politics and the policy has to be at the table. In fact, part of the reason I was saying that we didn't get to some of the difficult conversations is because members, some member states drew a line. And it's like, this is a no-go area. So much as you think that this is a necessary shift, but we didn't have those conversations because the line was drawn very early uh, in the conversation. Again, underscoring the place and role of politics and interests and political economy in in many of these things that you're saying. So it's, I I just want to recognize it's true. I'm I'm not going to argue uh, with the, the, points you're making. But I want to ask a different question of my own. Listening to you, I keep, the thing that I keep asking myself, because what you're saying is true, and coming from Rwanda, in fact, if there's one thing I learned coming out of Rwanda was that technology is not the the fix, right? The, no, Actually, that's the reason I said it's easy to change a farmer, right? Uh, if, uh, I mean, if, uh, we, we know the formula, like I said, the formula of getting, the amount of yield you want, but it's not easy to change the sector, right? Because changing the sector involves this, not just the science, not just the policies, but the political economy as well, and the political direction that is needed to do that, and of course the investments. So listening to all that, uh, so what I did come from Rwanda, coming to Agra, we put a lot of emphasis, even as that statement that you said is true, what doesn't come out is the investments we make in the policy to ensure that policies move, is the investment we, we make in political economy, in understanding governments and how they work, in trying to help them make, you know, really sit around the table and have discussions around what to prioritize versus what and why. So we do have those conversations. In fact, since I came to Agro, we built Agra as an African institution, not because I think that I have any, anything against any other continent, but because having come from a ministry, I understand how important it is for someone to trust the, the person they are talking to, for someone to know that I have no additional interest in trying to advise you except seeing the continent move forward. Because I know that that's a real, a real problem that these ministers have. Sometimes they are just not as well versed with these issues as they should be. And every time you're making a suggestion, they don't know in whose interest you're making it. So we said, you know what? We need to build an African institution that helps these people understand that my your interest as much is as much as my interest, or my interest is as much as your interest. And we help you figure out the conversations out there. We hope you translate it, but let's not use the excuse of not knowing who to trust to not move forward.
1: You know, during this, during the COVID, we've seen the kinds of fragilities that are in our food systems. In, you just mentioned it in Europe and North America, as well as across the developing world. And one of the things that really struck me is how. We have noticed, and we notice it here now with Brexit, that our farm systems have come to depend on almost slave-like labor uh, environments in the in the rich countries, and we were also so dependent on bringing temporary workers that you know with COVID and with Brexit here we're in a crisis in our agricultural system. But I noticed that also in Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire where the cocoa mechanisms of production are dependent on very uh, cheaply paid migrant labor disrupted completely by the pandemic. So I'm, I think it is, you know, we are at a moment and I, and I found Agnes's much of what you said, Agnes, very inspirational in terms of trying to confront this new new situation. So, Um, Just before I thank you both, Agnes, maybe you want to have the last word. We always give the speaker the last word.
2: No, um, thank you. Thank you so much, James. One of the things that um, when I was doing my PhD back there in Massachusetts, one of the things that I always thought about was that one day I will have a connection with being in a university and, and doing what I care about the most is being able to Pass knowledge, I mean, really embed myself in acquiring knowledge, but also being able to, to pass knowledge. And here, this is not about personal knowledge. This is about sharing um, and, and also learning from you all and the, any opportunity for us to learn from each other and to share, demystify some of the myths that are out there is extremely important, is a huge opportunity. But I also see this as an opportunity for you to tell, to tell you our story, our side of the story yeah. from where we come from and how we do things, the things that we do and why we do them, the hopes and aspirations that we have, and some of the challenges that we live with. Uh, and even, even as much as we think we are we are connected, there's still some of those, those things that are uh, that, that that still are not uh, not clear to all of us, and again, it gives us an opportunity to learn from each other. So, thank you for giving me the opportunity, but also to meet. Ian, I would really love to follow up because I love your thinking from an, from a policy perspective, from an institutional perspective. I'd love to follow up with you and see what how we can use. You know, just being able to have a, a smaller group debate with some of the the, the, think, the people who, who are good thinkers here on this continent and just having the opportunity to challenge each other, I think would be would be really good as a way of enhancing the between us and, and moving some of the things we care about forward. One of the things we think about a lot here on this African continent is, what will it take to transform African agriculture? We know that seven out of 10 people, if you look at it from a food system perspective, live in agriculture in Africa, but it's still, it continues to elude us, it continues to be the most elusive thing we, we all work in and yet the most elusive thing, again, given the challenges, but also the complexity of the problem that you're trying to deal with. So I would really love an opportunity to have, uh, 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 you know, to follow up, have a follow up conversation uh, on some of the ideas you had and how we can strengthen uh, working. And thank you, David, for to the getting me to this conversation and really giving me an opportunity to talk to this audience and thank you James for being such a great uh, and fantastic host
1: Agnes thanks so much I mean and I'm speaking on behalf of all the lSE students and faculty who were here and, and all the people who are listening in um, and watching from from YouTube uh, this was a fascinating evening. Ian, I think there's a great invitation to pursue the, um, the conversation and, and engagement and, you know, staying up so late to talk to us, we really appreciate it. And we hope we'll have you back to the LSE sometime soon. Thank you very much. And I remind the audience that um, to join us for the Cutting Edge Issue um, lecture next week.
0: Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.